This is the Bookish Redeemers podcast where we serve you all the book nutrients that your mind needs. Last month, we dealt with the subject of leadership management and ethics in the workplace, and we reviewed the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you haven't listened, you really should go back and listen to all of that after now on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and all your other listening platforms. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a notification when a new episode is up. Welcome once again. This month is an exciting month already. We are going to be delving into the world of African literatures and we will be starting with the book Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And someone might ask, why this book? Why not? Well, listen to what Chinua Achebe himself said in his review of this book. He said, we do not usually associate wisdom with beginners, but here is a new writer endowed with the gift of ancient storytellers. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie knows what is at stake and what to do about it. She's fearless or she would not have taken on the intimidating horror of Nigeria's civil war. Adichie came almost fully made. This book is about 499 pages with 37 chapters, divided into four parts, each focusing on a different period of time. So before we start, let's briefly introduce the author. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She's one of Africa's most celebrated contemporary authors. And she is the author that one of our book lovers at the first season of the Book Lovers Hangout said she had read of a book about eight, nine times. Yeah. A walks explores complex themes while challenging conventional narratives about Africa. This particular book, Half of a Yellow Sun, was published in the year 2006. We see how she weaves together the lives of several characters, Olana and Kainene, a twin. Then there's Ugo, there's Richard, and then there's Odenigo. All of these characters come from diverse backgrounds and their experiences sort of reflects the larger societal changes happening in Nigeria as at the time. She beautifully captures their personal struggles, their relationships, their perspectives, and the impact of war on their lives. The people of this age who might know nothing about the Nigerian civil war, we are hoping we will be able to fix that and um, get you to go out there and do your own research after now, right? You should know that the Nigerian Biafran War lasted from 1967 to 1970 for the sake of accuracy. Two years, six months, one week, and two days. So brutal killings, famine, hunger, pure hatred, and who bears the brunt? The masses, of course. They are the ones who need the most. This was a really traumatic period for Nigeria. We see the title of a book within this book. The world was silent when we died. What Chimamanda did with this book was not just to give us a mere historical account. She humanized the conflict by exploring its impact on ordinary people, on 
individuals and the nation as a whole. And through her vivid descriptions and well-developed characters, she brings the world's atrocities to life. She captures the fear, loss, hunger, death, and much more the resilience of the Nigerian people during that time. Let's talk about some of the important themes that were dealt with in this book. One conflict, the Nigerian Biafran War, served as the backdrop for the novel. And Chimamanda delves into the devastating effects of war on individuals and communities, portraying its brutality and all of the complex dynamics it creates. And then there's the theme of love and relationships. Yes, there are some who believe that this book is a love story. And there are some who would counter that and ask the question like, the love story between who and who? It's a matter of perspectives. But yes, there's the theme of love. We see different and various forms of love, friendship, romantic love, familial love. And she delves also into the intricacies of relationships, their fragility, and how they can be both a source of strength and vulnerability during times of turmoil. And then there is the theme of identity and belonging. The characters in this book grapple with questions of identity, both personal and national. There are other themes like the colonial legacy, gender, and then there is the theme of class and socioeconomic inequality. There is memory and history. All of these themes intertwine throughout the narrative, allowing readers to engage with complex issues while following the personal journeys of the characters. Right now, we are going to take discussion questions. Share this question with your friends or any book lover that you know. And um, share your feedback via any of our social media platforms on Telegram and Instagram at Bookishamers. Or send an email. If you have a differing opinion about anything at all, send an email at bookishamers at gmail.com. Our social media platforms will be open. Red was the blood of the siblings massacred in the north. Black was mourning for them. Green was the prosperity Biafra would have. And finally, the half of a yellow sun stood for the glorious future. How would you describe Ugu's wonder of his new environment? Childlike? Illiterate curious? The cold ban called the fridge. Turning off and on, the metal tap as water gushed. How do you think Ugo was able to manage that transition from village life to the intellectual and privileged world of his employers? Do you think there are still parts of the world where tiled roads and light bulbs are a wonder? Rather than ask you to imagine the future of some years ago that we are now living in, I ask you to imagine a world for the next generation. Back to Ugu, what do you make of Ugu's stealing pieces of chicken to send back home with his auntie to his sister and crush on his first night in his master's house? Though this dream of his was not to be as his master smelled the meat and told him food belonged in the kitchen and dining room, nowhere else. They did notice that his master did not accuse him of thievery 
or or send him back because i can well imagine the scene where his master would just call him out like you're still in it it's your first night here and you're already still in uh now you have to leave today and saying they would let him leave in peace it would have been a good thing you know like just go back to where you came from and then nobody knows what happened or why you've just returned from your supposed good life in the city but then imagine being caught with Rizzo and then Pepe applied to those courts so that you can remember like I remember never ever to steal in your life again and okay okay I may have gone over the top with that one for some of you, this might be really hard to imagine. But you should know that houseboys and housegirls suffer worse indignities. As we would later see, Odenigbo is not the regular kind of master. It was actually a very good one. But shouldn't goodness be the normal? Why can't his goodness be the normal? And that kind of wickedness, the abnormal, you know, like one in a million chance of happening. Hmm. Let's just say, in this part of the world, we have really good masters. They just don't make the news. Still in the early 60s, Ugu's master asked the 13-year-old to sing him a song. And he sang, Zobu, Zobu, Eyi, Ba, Eyi. And as he sings, tells him louder, louder, until he's finally satisfied. Um, it's a possibility that every song <laughs> he's ever learned escaped him or it was a foretelling of what was to come. The prophecy. I do not understand Igbo, but I can sing that song. It was in the movies, on the street. I can't remember where I first learned it. In my mind, it was sort of associated with Wahala. And I can almost see a mob with sticks and matchets progressing towards a destination to foment trouble. But Ugu, on the other hand, learned that song on his father's farm. Why didn't he sing a song that depicted goodness, love, peace, harmony, kindness, hard work, trust? <laughs> Why that particular song? It's curious. Education is a priority. And how can we resist exploitation if we don't have the tools to understand exploitation? This statement was made by Odenibo. Don't you think the use of houseboys consistently shows a form of exploitation? All through the book, we see how a lack of education plays a role. Nelson Mandela puts it this way, that education is the great engine of personal development. It is through education that the daughter of a peasant can become a doctor, that the son of a mine worker can become the head of the mine, that a child of farm workers can become the president of a great nation. Sitting kids down to talk about their family history, what plants can be used for what, is a form of education in itself. It's not encompassing enough to cover the requirement for a civilized world. It meant no reliable source of income for most. And that still exists today, that relationship between education and economic sustenance. The real tragedy of our post-colonial world is not that the majority of people had no say in whether or not they wanted this new world. Rather, 
it is that the majority have not been given the tools to negotiate this new world. Let's talk about the village people. Ugu remembers that his mom would always say we shall defeat them. They will not win whenever he fell ill or fell from a tree. And now in his bid to please his master and be secure in the household, he ironed his master's socks and burnt them. This evil spirit now stand accused of pushing him to do what he should otherwise not have done. A man steals from the farm. He was caught and claims, they made me do it. These same village people made Odenigo, who is a mathematics professor and a pseudo-revolutionary. In the absence of Olana, cheats on her with Amala, the girl Odenigo's mother brought to him from the village. Village people. After Olana's first dissent with Odenigo over his mom's outburst and his reaction, she calls her twin sister on an impulse and asks, Why don't we talk anymore, Kainene? These conversations go on all the time, with different variation. Questions like, what happened to us? Let's talk about the side conversation between Okeoma and Richard. And this particular scene is set in Odenigo's living room. Okeoma is, by the way, the poet. He asks Richard about the book he's writing. And Richard then mentions his interest in Igbo Uku art. Let me quote him. He says, it's quite incredible that these people had perfected the complicated art of lost wax casting during the time of the Vikings raid. And Okioma responds, you sound surprised as if you've never imagined these people capable of such things. To Okioma, Richard's comment was both screaming and stinking of condescension, right? Or was this an assumption on Okioma's part? Because we see a flip scene occur almost immediately, where Richard, while brooding on the conversation he has just had with Okioma, calls a young lady selling board granuts, then takes one, cracks it, and chews it before asking for two cups. The lady who was selling the granite was in turn surprised. And... Obviously, she was thinking where and how did he learn to do that? And Richard thinks Okioma would have been surprised too if he had seen that. What do you make of this? So all of this might sound so good, but it's just a revealing of what life was like for Olana, Odenibo, and Ugo before the war. We cannot be dismissive of a belief system merely because it is unfamiliar to us. Just as we cannot be dismissive with a history because we are uncomfortable with it. Olana went into shock at seeing her auntie and uncle's body turn into bits and pieces. And the neighbor, Abdul Malik, the same guy who made Olana's sandals, who her mm. uncle and aunt had welcomed into their home, interacted and done business with, Saying and screaming, it is his will. How sad. How dreadful it must have been for Olana to go back to her uncle and just find them on the floor, torn into bits and pieces with an ask. Ah, no, that image is gory. I can't imagine what she must have felt. 
And it wasn't just a family, there were a lot of people, according to the records and data, about 3 million people died from that war. Who benefits from war? Why did Olana not take the visa that a mom, Mrs. Ozobia, was offering she and Kainene so that they could leave the country? Is love this misguided need to have you beside me most of the time? Is love this safety I feel in our silences? Is it this belonging, this completeness? Letter by Kainene, the supposed ice queen. Odenibo didn't marry Olana until <laughs> the war had started. Think about getting married and instead of dancing to music like I found love for me or it's a beautiful night we're looking for something done to do I think I want to marry you okay that's 2010 <laughs> okay instead of drinking and dancing over Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's Ain't No Mountain High Enough you and your guests are scattering at the sounds of planes and running at the beat of bombs raining down. She tried to have a child with Odenibo but couldn't for some reason. And then Odenibo's mother came with a village girl who Odenibo in turn impregnates. And so there's a baby in the making somewhere. And that's how baby comes in. The child was named baby. At independence in 1960, Nigeria was a collection of fragments held in a fragile clasp. In the late 60s, the war had gotten really bad. They had to get food from relief centers. And then Olana meets a man named Okorumadu, who claims Inoza, and reminded her about how she helped to calm his mother down at the airport. That singular act got a provision that was otherwise finished. So should we unpack this scenario or leave it alone? If you were in a war with a dying child on your hands, who wouldn't eat nothing but what's given at the relief center? Then you'll be grateful a long-time kindness paid dividends. And though this was a classic case of being kind to someone who would later be important to your destiny, <laughs> Um, we see that Olana was just being a kind person to that woman, that stranger she met at the airport. Our kindness should not be because of the dividends or the profits we might later get out of it. The mindset really should be that I am kind because that's who I am. We cannot pick our history. To do that will be to pass on incomplete stories. A story is true only when it is complete. There is the big question, the cliffhanger that Chimamanda leaves us with. Kainene never returning back after she left to cross the border to go get more food. So what happened to Kainene? Let's take a summary of this book. Olana is a young woman from a wealthy family. 
who abandons her life of privilege in Lagos to live with her lover, Adenibe, an idealistic university professor in the town of Unsuka. They face numerous challenges as the war escalates, including the bombing and destruction of their home. They are forced to flee Unsuka and become refugees, struggling to find safety and basic necessities. Kainene, Olana's twin sister, runs her father's business empire in the city of Podakrat. She's known for her independent and resilient spirit. During the war, Kainene is involved in risky business ventures to keep the company afloat. She forms a relationship with Richard, a British writer who becomes infatuated with her. However, their relationship faces strains due to the war and their different backgrounds. Ubu, a young boy from a rural village, works as a houseboy for Odenibo and Olana. He witnesses the brutalities of war firsthand experiencing violence, hunger, and displacement. Ugu is eventually conscripted into the Biafran army and faces the horrors of war as a child soldier. Ugu, the village boy, then becomes educated well enough to write a book. The world was silent when we died. Richard, the British writer, is initially captivated by the vibrancy of Nigeria and falls in love with Igbo culture. He documents the war and the struggle for Biafran independence. However, as the war progresses, Richard faces the complexities of his position as a foreigner and the challenges of reporting on a conflict he doesn't fully understand. Throughout the novel, the characters endure unimaginable hardships, including bombing, starvation, loss of loved ones, and the trauma of war. The war leaves a profound impact on each character, reshaping their relationships, identities, and understanding of the country's history. Highlighting the resilience, courage, and sacrifices made by individuals during times of conflict. May we remember our story as it truly is. May we have the courage to do better for ourselves and those coming after us. Yours truly, Amos. I just thought to check, oh wow, I just thought to check the meaning of that song I was <laughs> describing earlier, Zobun Zobu Eyi Ba Eyi. When you're singing that, don't sing it with laughter because <laughs> it's actually an evil war chant and it means stampede to death. So I was kind of right, even though I never knew what the English version meant. Wow. Okay. Welcome to a fresh season of the Bookish Amos podcast. 